HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So welcome to 2020, folks. Um, This show has took a little bit of a break, but I'm really glad to be back because this week has been uh, the publication, or launch week of a book that I've been eyeing for so long. It's by a legendary cookbook author whose books I can't live without, and she's joining me today in the studio. It is Derek Goldstein. And I'm so happy to be here, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad I could catch you before you whisk off to somewhere northern. <laughs> I can't stay <laughs> away North from Pole. the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll be in spitting distance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I'm so glad we could uh, take the time because you... Um, have written this book about Russian food called Beyond the North Wind, and it is such a beautiful meditation of a place. And through through, it's called actually Russia in Recipes and Lore is the subtitle. Um, and it just evokes like when I open it, I feel like I get a whiff of like the Northern Pole because of the beautiful prose, um, photography, and of course the fascinating foods I mean so I mean when you think of when I thought of Russian food before I would think of maybe potatoes and beets and then I would struggle to think of more maybe blinis a few things but this book is really just uh, you know kind of tosses the those preconceptions out the window so tell me a little bit more about how you got to write this book it's been brewing or Mm -hmm. simmering I'm not sure what the right 
verb is, but for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I first went to Russia, which then was the Soviet Union, 1972. So from my first taste, so from my first taste, Mm -hmm. or actually my first smell Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the country, I was pretty smitten. And I've been thinking about Russian food. My very first cookbook was A Taste of Russia Mm -hmm. that I wrote in 1983. And I looked at Soviet food, and it also looked at the food of the aristocracy in the 19th century, the grand haute cuisine dishes. But I feel like so much has changed, and I really want to get to what's elemental about Russian food and the way they've been cooking for over a thousand years. I love that. I love that you've uncovered that because, um, you know, you write in the beginning that your aim is to uh, unearth the most deeply Russian flavors, like those elemental flavors you were talking about, and um, also discover the benefits of the austerity rather than those limitations. So what are some elemental flavors of Russian cuisine? I think what comes first to mind is a taste for the sour. Mm. And that's funny for Americans because when you say sour, you know, unless you love Sour Patch Kids, <laughs> um, it's like that's not a really positive yeah, adjective. The, even just the word means like kind of dour or sour. I don't yeah, know. Like yeah, like sourpuss. Right, right. But for Russians, that sour tang or mm. that sour note is really important. And so you find a lot of fermented foods where you get that layering of flavor. They add uh, the pickle brine from Mm lacto-fermentation, so it's sort of salty and sour. They add that to soups. Whey that uh, is drained off from making fresh cheese, they'll add to dough, Mm -hmm. and that also gives it a kind of sourness. They culture a lot of dairy products. So it's not that the food tastes sour, but it just has that little bit of edge to it. Right. And, you know, another term for this is brightness, right? Nowadays, the chefs use that term, so it's definitely a more positive spin. Maybe I have to start using that then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, So, yeah, what... Okay, so also going back to the differences between your 1983 cookbook, and that was all about the sort of czarist or haute cuisine... Um, why, you know, why did you feel like mean, you wanted to explore the more homespun traditions of, of regular people in Russia for this one? Because I felt as though I hadn't really described it fully. Mm. And also, it's very interesting, after Russia invaded and annexed Crimea mm-hmm. in 2014, there were sanctions put on imports into Russia, you know, the U.S., Europe, and um, Australia and Canada said we're not sending any more food there. And the Russians had gotten used to all these imported cheeses and delicacies. Mm -hmm. And they had to turn inward and find things for themselves. And uh, there was this wonderful artisanal revival. Yeah. Looking back at the old ways, looking at recipes that had been lost during that long Soviet period. Mm-hmm. So when I traveled there uh, beginning, you know, maybe five years ago, I noticed a distinct change. Mm-hmm. And all of these dishes that I had read about in manuscripts, and mm-hmm. suddenly I was tasting those flavors. Wow, that's fascinating that you connect it to, yeah, the local 
or sorry, more recent events in in history. Um, I think that it sounds like you've had a fascinating career. Like somebody should make a movie about your life because, you know, you've been going to Russia for so long. You've actually served as a special envoy for the United States Department, uh, the State Department um, to Georgia. At a time, you mentioned in the 80s, you were uh, a spokesperson for a vodka brand. I was the Stoli girl, believe it or not. I didn't have to wear one of those little outfits, but I did travel around the Mm -hmm. United States telling people how to uh, drink vodka Mm -hmm. and the role of vodka in Russian life. So that is why we now have this thing called Stoli Cranberry, (laughs) which you can order anywhere. (laughs) I like it pure. And you've also uh, consulted with the Russian Tea Room in yes, the New York City. The, the late lamented Russian uh, Tea Room. Well, it's, it was, you know, there's, the, yeah. Oh, the only time I've really ever had my fill of caviar. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, we had to taste a lot of different kinds. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about caviar a second, because that is one of my favorite foods, too. And, um... You know, you, you write that, you know, it's certainly a lofty food and the reputation here, and it's very expensive, um, but it's a little bit more every day for wealthy Russians. It is. Caviar, it makes me really sad to talk about it because the Caspian sturgeon, there are three different kinds of sturgeons that live in the Caspian, and they're very, very endangered. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer they'll be on this earth And so I refused to buy any caviar from the Caspian any longer, and I only use sustainable caviar or sustainable rows that come from the United States. Mm -hmm. But it was so abundant in the past in Russia that uh, one of my favorite instructions in a 19th century cookbook is to clarify your broth Mm. with caviar. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, because it has so much protein in it that it makes that raft that lifts all the impurities out, and then you get this beautiful, clear broth. Oh, my goodness. This is just an everyday (laughs) ingredient, and you don't see that, you know, too many cultures eating a lot of and making a a big, wonderful, like, dishes with caviar and appetizers, of course, blinis and caviar is just such a wonderful tradition. It is. It's Uh, classic, and, and it pains me when I see people mm. putting caviar and then hard-boiled eggs that have been minced and then sour cream. I really think it should just be butter and caviar on the blini. Isn't that at the lobster, uh, the oyster house, the Grand Central Oyster House? They have that sandwich with the hard-boiled egg and, and caviar. Yeah, I've seen that. So, so we, it should be just showcase the caviar and not crowd it around too much. Is that I the think idea? so. Yeah. I, li- I like pure flavors. Yeah, yeah. Is there any way we can buy more? Like, do you have any tips for finding more um, sustainably sourced caviar? Yes. Um, if you Google uh, American paddlefish mm-hmm. caviar, okay. uh, you'll find a lot of different sources for it, and it comes from the Missouri or the Mississippi rivers. There's some that uh, comes from Montana as well. And it's sustainably harvested. There are also some companies that are farming sturgeon Mm -hmm. in California, for instance, um, in the Sacramento River. Mm -hmm. There used to be a ton of sturgeon in the Hudson. Oh, really? But it was overfished. And uh, when the sturgeon was overfished in Russia at the end of the 19th century, they started importing it from the United States. And Um. then it was overfished here. You know, it just goes back and forth. 
So the Hudson was rich in caviar and oysters and yes, all this it was. goodness. And I know the oysters are coming mm-hmm. back. No, oh. but I don't know about the sturgeon. Well, that not in not in uh, edible quantities, at least. Hmm, that may be a project for someone who's listening out there. <laughs> um, so we were talking about some elemental tastes of Russia, and we we covered sourness. Um, is there anything more that we're not thinking of, or that, you know, that most people might not think of? To me, the other taste that I would talk about is earthiness. Mm-hmm. So I think most listeners know that one of the great Russian pastimes is foraging, mm-hmm. and it's not like trendy uh, to go <laughs> with your forager to look for things you, you really... It's not a hipster like activity there? <laughs> no, okay. it, it's just built into the seasons and it's in the Russian blood. So to go out for mushrooms, to go out for wonderful, wonderful berries. Mm-hmm. And there are berries that we don't have here uh, that have a kind of musky flavor like uh, cloudberries cloud or the berries. lingonberries mm. or my personal favorite, which grows on a bush. It's uh, a little bit different from what you'd get in the woods, but that's sea buckthorn. That's fascinating. And so all of these, uh, they just taste of the musky. land, huh. very musky. musky. Yeah, But in a good way. Again, musky, you think of muskrat or oh, something. No. I'm thinking maybe grape, like a little bit of a muskiness yes. there. Okay. Yes, in a good way. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, these are flavors that, um, you know, are just new to me, some of them, mm. but also they sound, you know, just bright and exciting and, yeah. you know, it's, it's really wonderful to explore that these are everyday combinations uh, throughout. Yes, um, and if you think about uh, baked goods too, mm-hmm. and we think about wheat flour, and the go-to flour in Russia would be rye. Mmm, spicy and peppery. Yeah. Mm. I, I actually got to dine on a few of these delicacies mm. at Dara, Dara's book party at Honey's a couple days ago, and that rye um, flour, scallion the pie. scallion pie, was so delicious, and that crust really was like half of it. You know, to me, it's just wonderful. And you can make it, too, with this book. Um, Lots more to talk about um, with Dara's long career in cookbooks and food writing, and we didn't even get to half of it. So we'll be right back after a brief little commercial interlude. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. All right, we're back chatting more with cookbook author Dara Goldstein, whose latest book is called Beyond the North Wind. Um, So, Dara, I have to tell you, I didn't tell you this before, but um, the Georgian feast is something that I, like, refer to all the time whenever I'm making, like, a walnut-based sauce. There's so many wonderful... You know, secrets locked in that uh, cookbook, which won a James Beard Award. Oh, it was ICP. ICP? Yeah. Okay. 
Which, but you also, you've had so many awards that are like. <laughs> yeah, that you've one had, was mm-hmm. Cookbook of the Year wow. for ICP. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, Gastronomica was the James Beard and Fire and Ice had a James Beard mm-hmm. nomination. Got it. And you're also the founding editor of Gastronomica, which had the Publication of the Year award. Um, but I'm curious, why after all these years, um, since you've been writing cookbooks, um, why did you only just now write this sort of follow-up to your last <laughs> Russian cookbook? Do you want an honest answer? Yes. Okay. So Fire and Ice that you mentioned, uh, Classic Nordic Cooking, was mm-hmm. published by Tenspeed in 2015. Mm-hmm. And my editor said, I want you to write a Russian cookbook. And I burst out laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, I've already done that. But then I couldn't stop thinking about it because I realized that I had something new to say and I had new things to explore for Mm -hmm. myself. And for me, writing cookbooks is about my own discoveries as well uh, before I get to the point where I can share them. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't get out of my mind, and this is the result. Ah, Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that, um, yes, it was presented to you and you took that up and um your your grandmother was also from russia so was this a person well russian jewish Mm -hmm. and so she escaped the Mm -hmm. pogroms there so it was a slightly different kind of thing okay in fact couldn't really understand why i was so drawn to this place that had been difficult for her Mm -hmm. but i love russia Mm -hmm. i mean it's different from politics. It's Russian culture, right. which is really rich, and the people are quite wonderful, and the food. Absolutely. And I love that you started your career in Russian literature and then Russian art. Um, was food just a natural uh, pr- progression from that, or was it something always on your mind and always in your interest? I've always been interested in food, but I actually wanted to write my dissertation on food in Russian literature. Mm-hmm. And this was a long time ago. It was back in the 1970s, and I was told I was not a serious person. Oh, no. Yeah, I was yeah. at Stanford. Right. And uh, Like I, food wasn't serious enough. It wasn't serious enough. To be academically sort of acceptable. Exactly. And that was, in a way, the impetus for my first cookbook, because I needed to prove those state professors wrong. Mm-hmm. And in my own career at Williams, I ended up teaching food studies, which right. was really <laughs> wonderful. So it all came full circle. <laughs> it certainly did. And in your lifetime, during your career, have you seen, um, and you certainly helped foster this through your work, but um, were you surprised by seeing a a growing respect, I guess, in the academic world for food studies? I think those of us who were involved in the beginning worked very hard to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So it's quite wonderful now. People can study food, can be taken seriously, and there's a lot of great research that's being done. But it's interesting because when I see that very academic side, I want to be in the kitchen. I want people to learn to cook and not just write about food. The sensual aspect of it is so important and the sensory. Mm. Uh, So there's maybe too much food writing that doesn't uh, understand what it means to Mm. taste things. Oh, I love that. So there's, there's... There's a tendency to focus on just the culture, the history, and just geeking out on that without actually talking about the recipes and how to 
make it. Yeah, or not really talking about the food, okay. but talking <laughs> around the food, if you know <laughs> what I mean. And that drives me a bit crazy. Well, I think it's really amazing that you have bridged these divides between, this is like a commercial book, you know, this is a, this is, you walk down the street into a nice bookstore and you'll see this on the shelf and same with your last few few books. Um, and so this is a very, you know, a successfully, uh, commercially successful, um, project, whereas I think a lot of, um, folks have published books in an academic, um, what press or something in an academic press that would be more of food studies, but this is like it gives you both. I think um, the scholarly approach to a place and a culture and a people, as well as great recipes and beautiful photos. And that's what it comes down to: is the the good taste and the mm-hmm. pleasure in the kitchen, but within the context of the culture. So to me, the food is always enhanced mm-hmm. when you know something about where it came from or the people who made it or stories about where I first tasted it. So the book has lots of stories from my many years of going back. Yes, absolutely. There. That's the lore part, the you know Russian recipes and lore. It is wonderful to have a personal connection and personal experiences that you can talk about throughout each page, which... They really are beautiful, and they jump out on of the page. And, uh, I mean, just looking at this back cover, <laughs> you want to tell me about this dish, actually? Yes, so that's this one of the, the glories mm-hmm. of Russian cuisine. Uh, the pies in Russia, if, if there's one thing that I gravitate to, it's the pies. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of savory pies. And this is one of the most famous. It's called kulibyaka. But it was uh, adopted into French cuisine as coulibiac mm-hmm. and given a puff pastry crust or okay. a, a brioche, hmm. a brioche dough. But in Russia, it is a much um, more... But in Russia, it uh, isn't Frenchified. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a, a long oval pie that Mm -hmm. is about uh what is this two feet long maybe and the classic one has many layers you do a layer of blini on the crust on the dough so that it doesn't get soggy okay um you have then salmon sturgeon i substitute halibut because i can't get sturgeon okay yeah uh sauteed mushrooms that have been mixed with onions and hard-boiled egg to bind it and dill a little bit of sour cream i'm starting mm-hmm. to salivate oh my now goodness, yeah um then you have i'm sure i'm for, oh yes buckwheat oh, uh, wow. so you make these layers and then you reverse them and you wrap it up in the dough and you bake it and you cut a little hole in the top and at the end after it's baked, you can pour in a little bit of uh, fish stock or butter so that mm. it's really luscious. Savory fish pie. Yeah. I need to make this very soon because, you know, meat pies, there's plenty of those here in this book. But this seems just like a celebration, a special occasion. For- it is. The one in my first cookbook took an entire day to make. Mm-hmm. This one doesn't take very long. I've streamlined it. I, I don't put the the pancakes in it. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I'm glad yeah. that you... <laughs> yeah, my life is too hectic. I have. <laughs> Since the first book. I actually like this one better. Yeah. No, it looks beautiful. And um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just all about the savory pies, so this is a good one to add, um, especially this, this weather, this season, you know. Um, I love that you write in the introduction that, you know, the harsh climate and limited availability of foods can foster an astonishingly complex cuisine character, characterized by exhilarating flavors and innovative techniques. Do you think that's an example of a dish that's kind of making the best possible, most exciting thing with um, just, you know, limited amount of ingredients? I do. And one of the interesting things for me was I had tasted this pie many times in the regions around Moscow or St. Petersburg, but in the north, the balance or the proportion shift. Really? And you have a lot more fish and less dough because this pie actually uses wheat okay uh, because it's celebratory as you say mm-hmm. and wheat doesn't or at least didn't before there were all these hybrids grow well in the north mm. so you have a little bit of crust and a lot of fish right. and the further south you go you have more crust and less fish because you're that much further from the ocean so there Got are it. lots of different variations right right and just just in this pie section alone there's russian hand pies little fish pies pickle pies Puff pies, <laughs> chicken pie, scallion pie, which we mentioned is so good. I mean, there's just just galore pies here. So um, I actually really love that um, you describe this uh, cuisine as being, you know, uh, so innovative and so inventive using so little. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, somebody who's like, um, you know, like like a like they say in wines, you know, you have to go through hardship to make the best wine or like you have to suffer a little bit to have the best character. It kind of makes me think this cuisine is so good because of its uh, climate is a little bit challenging. Well, I would say that it uh, gets you close to the earth or mm-hmm. to the sea. And so you have that intensity of flavor. And also you have to remember that in the summer, Mm -hmm. in the far north, you have 24 hours of daylight. Mm. And so the herbs there are extraordinary uh, because they're getting so much light and the flavor is quite intense. So nothing, and they use horseradish, they use very strong mustard. So it's, I think another misconception is that Russian cuisine is, you know, as you said, meat and potatoes right. are really bland. Okay. But it, it is, uh, there's a lot of pungency that like, yeah. I like piquancy. Piquancy. Yeah. So, um, so we all know that, you know, Scandinavian or Nordic cuisine is, is enjoying this little renaissance and reclaiming its sort of um, roots and its heritage. Do you see that happening in Russia as well? It is on a smaller scale. There mm-hmm. isn't a restaurant like Noma. There's a, mm-hmm. a restaurant in Moscow called Lafka Lafka, Mm -hmm. and the man behind it is doing uh, wonderful things, resurrecting old recipes. Mm -hmm. In Mormonsk, which is way up north on the Barents Sea, uh, there are extraordinary restaurants that Mm. I describe here where they're doing kind of newfangled things with these old ingredients. paying respect to Yeah, so there Mm. is a kind of new Russian... Mm -hmm. Movement, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's not widespread. Right, right. Well, some of the recipes in here you mentioned you, you sort of are, are showcasing 
slightly um, new takes on. Yeah. And I I did my own new takes. Uh, For instance, the pickle pies that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. that's not a classic Russian Mm. recipe. But I really love cucumbers and I love pickles. So I decided to cook the cucumbers uh, before putting them into the pie pie dough, into the crust. uh, And then it tastes like pickles. Right, right. And of course, there's tons of drink recipes here. We didn't even get into all the wonderful infused vodkas that are an elemental part, would you say, of the cuisine. (laughs) Um, Oh, my goodness. It looks like we're just about out of time, though. But um, Dara, thank you so much for joining us. And I can't wait to share this book with so many more people because we didn't even scratch the surface of all the recipes that you've unearthed. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Kathy. It's been a pleasure. And uh, that's about it for today's Eat Your Words, but we'll see you next week with a new guest. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.